On this episode of Common Mystics, we team up with the inimitable Nicole Bigley of A Psychic Story Podcast to explore the turbulent events that still haunt one Midwestern city. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today's story comes to you from Cincinnati, Ohio. Please welcome Nicole Bigley. And I'm Nicole Bigley. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Oh, my God. Thank you for having us and spending time with us in your stomping grounds. It It was was so so much fun. Yeah, I had well one meeting you guys in person because we talk so much, you know, live virtually and everything else, but also seeing you guys. And then for the first time ever, actually hitting the ground in my home city and starting to try and get more psychic senses and abilities and hits. So that was really, really fun. You were so on. You were like, 100%. like you are amazing. And it was so fun to watch you work. It was seamless. It felt like you're one of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought I was learning from you guys, the experts. I was just kind of whatever. But it, I will say it was a little hard. I don't want to get mm. like too far ahead of us. Oh. But it was a little hard in the sense of because we were in a city. We didn't right. go anywhere more obscure or where there were less people. I mean, it was a weekend and mm-hmm. people were walking around and all that stuff. But again, I don't want to get too far ahead. But yeah, it was a lot of insights, both in seeing how you guys work in real time, but also myself too. And then being able to build off of each other too, which mm-hmm. I don't feel like we get, I mean, you guys probably do as sisters and doing this all the time, but for me, I don't get that ability to necessarily work real time and see it happening. It's definitely a lot of fun for us to be able to validate what we're feeling on the road. So it is fun to bring a friend to do the psychic stuff. It is. And for me, I was taking a step back and just trying to keep up with everything that you two were getting. It was really fun for me as well. But let's talk about where we were. We were obviously in Cincinnati, but we were in a very specific part of Cincinnati. Can you explain? Sure. So over the Rhine is a historic area in Cincinnati. There's a lot of history to it. It has changed and transitioned over over time. As a whole, Cincinnati is a really old city in America. It was actually listed as one of the newer places in consideration for being the country's capital and a bunch of other stuff. So there's a lot of history in Cincinnati, but over the Rhine in particular has a lot of cultural history as far as immigrants being placed there, living there, more German influence, that sort of thing. And when you guys originally had said you were going to come and kidnap me and visit, I was like, where do we go? <laughs> And we actually thought of different places like Waynesville, Ohio, and a couple more remote locations. But at the end of the day, we just felt like let's do over the Rhine. It's referred to as OTR here in Cincinnati. It's a little hilly. There are a lot of really historical buildings because Cincinnati does take a lot of pride in not knocking down and building new. So that kind of influence, I felt like just from a look and feel, but also energetic played into it as well. And yes, back in the day over the Rhine or OTR was for the working people, but food and alcohol and it was a hub in the city center as far as being able to create jobs and influence the peoples of the city. We were at a delicious Italian restaurant, but after we ate lunch is we literally walked out of the restaurant and went to the nearest street corner and set our intention. Jennifer? Do you want to remind everyone what our intention is? (laughs) Our intention was for the spirits to lead us to a verifiable story previously unknown to us that allowed us to give voice to the voiceless. That's right. And Nicole right away was, first of all, I just want to say what makes me love you so much is that you are (laughs) a perfect blend of Jennifer and I in a sense that like Jennifer is trying to control me, like breaking into places. And then like, I look and I'm like, Nicole's already in there. You can't stop me now. <laughs> yeah, you may be sisters, but I don't need to listen to you. I can do what I want. <laughs> and I'm following exactly. Nicole's lead. <laughs> that was hysterical. Yeah, she has that mixture of 
calm like me, mm-hmm. but bold like Jill. And that's a dangerous it combination, really if I it might really say is, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive, though. I was so It was so fun to watch you work. Okay, let's talk about Nicole's hits, because they were a lot. As we were walking through this neighborhood over the Rhines, you were picking, mm-hmm. you got some good hits. Yeah, take us through those. Sure. One of you was really pulled to this one building. And as we were looking at the building, we weren't getting a ton from the building per se. But when I turned around, I saw flames coming up out of the buildings across from us. And then I started to see the flames move as if there was a bigger fire. I also very distinctly saw this old fashioned horse drawn fire truck. I kept saying fire, fire trucks. And I had never actually seen one before, whether it was online through research or obviously in person in a museum or something like that. So that stood out for sure. And then when we also walked in this one area where there were a lot of bricks, I think we were all three drawn to this one area, this alleyway. Mm -hmm. I very distinctly saw people drinking in crowds and then things being thrown over. Then I ultimately at the end was feeling drawn to the water or water and the banks where separate Cincinnati and Kentucky. You were picking up on the soldiers lining up, which I thought was very, very cool. So Mm -hmm. it was like it was like a line that you described of armed men, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was later on when we went over to northern Kentucky and I saw these soldiers lined up. But it does make sense that we got it for that, which is another episode, but also for the purpose of the conversation. It was more in uniform that I was seeing these men in uniform and arms lined up and almost like moving forward as if you were stopping something from happening, like stopping a progression of people or people's moving forward. Like a human barricade. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, do you want to save that hit for the next episode? Yeah, I think it's um, important for both. And it wasn't until reflection and looking at the notes that I realized that it was a a hit for both situations, kind of like the bricks for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to talk about too for your listeners is what you guys refer to as those breadcrumbs. Sometimes those breadcrumbs can be a message that is specific to whatever then and then later too. And, And for me, that was the pull through for both stories. That's interesting. I do remember feeling of infiltrating a building brick by brick. I remember that. And I remember we were on the main drag and it felt like someone was breaking in through in, but it's specifically through the brick. Mm -hmm. It's interesting what Jen and I talk about just randomly, like in the car, any conversation is relevant. We never know what's relevant to the story until hindsight. Mm -hmm. So even like when we were just like talking in the car, it was like we this is something that we need to note, even if it doesn't seem like it's just nothing. It's always something always just comes up just in random conversation. Yeah, it was fascinating to see your process because I would even say stuff and you guys would say, nope, let's write it down. Yep. <laughs> Everything. That's why we have Jennifer hopping. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. Every that's time true. we asked you a question, you're like, I'm just trying to take notes. Leave me alone. <laughs> Exactly. I uh, I felt the the feeling of barricading the doorways. Like I felt like you're trying to keep someone out. Also feeling of a hanging, like an event of a hanging. You did say that. Yeah. It was like mm-hmm. something to be seen. And then that music hall, when we were in the car, that building, that almost like 3D booked out at me. Yeah. You said that. Yes, absolutely. So that was mm-hmm. interesting. And then being drawn to the train station, the feeling that I want to say, like, get away. The feeling of getting away to me felt like I say these words, but it felt like a vacation. Like, oh, I need to get away. I need a vacation. But it was really like mm-hmm. relevant to the story. Like, no, I need to get away. Like mm-hmm. this person needs to get away. So it's interesting how the hits come up in that way. Like even the words, just a different context around it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also kind of important for people who are listening to about your own intuition is that even me being seasoned would discount some things and Jen and Jill say, no, let's write it down. But also there was so many ways that the information was coming through, whether emotionally through my mind's eye, through just all of that stuff. And like you even just explained, the getting away, the need to get to that level was, and it stood out, I'm sure was a kind of a combination of of you receiving those hits. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Are Claire's, like when you're picking up these avenues for spirit to like use to communicate with you, it's never one. 
It's Mm -hmm. always multiple and it's how are you experiencing it? And it's just Jen and I, because we're doing the mentorship really have to stop and think about like, how are we doing? How is this being processed? So just taking that moment to be like, how am I understanding this Mm -hmm. to be spirit? How am I knowing that this is important is understanding Mm -hmm. the different clairs and how they're working together. Yes. Right. And when we were out on the streets together, we were all feeling crime crime, but also corruption. Mm -hmm. And all three of us seem to be really focused on the bricks that lined the old brick streets. We were focused on them and looking at them very intently. And then specific to the late 1800s, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely felt old. It was getting the impression that we were in a time capsule and it traveled back in time and there was this movie. It was definitely old, Mm. uh, 1800s for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, when we went to the research, we did find some relevant information that seemed very applicable given our hits. Well, first, give us a little background on Cincinnati and what was happening in the area around the late 1800s. So in the 1880s, Cincinnati was a bustling industrial city, but it was also plagued by rising crime rates during that time. Mm. And it was a big problem. The police force in the city, consisting of 300 men and five patrol wagons, faced the task of curbing criminal activities. And on January 1st, 1884, the jail had over 20 accused murderers locked up. Jesus. So crime was a problem. Well, and I just want to say about Cincinnati, it's a big, proper city. So think of like the city of Chicago only having like five police cars. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. There's not a lot of policing, it sounds like, in that area. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Five patrol wagons means five cars, exactly. right? Exactly. Because there were no cars there. <laughs> Horse and buggies. Good point. Yeah. And and murders. Yeah. The 23 to even just think about the fact that that's who they caught. Oh, that's yeah. such a good point. Who was exactly. Jailed. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Who there's not a large. lot of investigating going on. So probably they saw mm-hmm. someone Absolutely. kill someone to be caught, basically. <laughs> but it wasn't just crime. It was also corruption. Tell me more. Local leaders were notorious for manipulating elections, judges and juries. And and there was an extensive article featured in the Cincinnati Inquirer on March 9th, 1884, and it lamented that lax laws allowed rampant murderers and citizens felt unsafe even in broad daylight, despite the city's prominent art scene and its its status as a science and industry center as well. You know what's interesting? And I mean this in a loving way. That's exactly how I felt that day, walking around Cincinnati and that dichotomy. Yes, over the Rhine, because you felt artsy, but then you also Mm -hmm. like literally felt like I'm walking past a crime happening right now. Like I literally (laughs) felt that. You were on edge. You were on edge. Yes, yes. So Mm -hmm. that's really, that's kind of cool because that's exactly how I felt that day. Okay, continue. Sorry. It's not about me. It's about the city. (laughs) City Hall and the courthouse reeked of corruption since the Civil War, in fact. John Roll McLean, who was the publisher of The Inquirer, conspired with attorney Thomas C. Campbell to exploit public funds. And Cincinnati leaders reveled in the misuse of public resources. During elections, so-called floaters would vote multiple times, and jurors lined up to exchange verdicts for bribes or favors. And the police department was filled with political cronies as well. Laws, including those requiring saloons to close on Sundays, were often ignored, and murderers and rapists roamed the city streets of Cincinnati. Jeez. Sounds like a time where I'm glad I didn't live there then. (laughs) (laughs) Although not too far from probably where it is today, too, with corruption. But I digress. (laughs) Well, yeah. So we did find a significant event that happened in uh, 1883. Would you like me to discuss it? I would love it. I'm excited. What could have happened? So it was Christmas Eve, 1883 when a man named William Kirk bade his wife farewell with a kiss. He hated to have to leave home on Christmas Eve, but he had to head to work to tie up some loose ends before the holiday. He literally said that to her, too. He was like, I don't want to leave right now, but I have to. Like, that just breaks my heart, but continue. Sorry. He probably had a feeling, too. Mm -hmm. 
He was a merchant, and he had recently branched into the horse trade. And he set out from his Cincinnati home with more than $200 on him with the intention to purchase a horse in Cheviot, Ohio. And let me say, so $200 then is about $5,000 now a days. But also later I did research and apparently it was up to $240 that he had as well. Oh. So it was closer to like six grand. And he was originally a sand dealer or a sand merchant. So back in... What is that? So yeah, so sand that would create bricks because uh, oh. <laughs> we kept hearing bricks but also for so for building material but also rookwood pottery is a big thing here in Cincinnati way from way back in the day as well tiles actual pottery things like that so the fact that he was a sand dealer or a sand merchant and was branching out to become in that horse trade was I think a significant part of the story too a hundred percent. And you guys, do you remember we were reading the stamps on the bricks? On the bricks. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Ooh, wow. girl. Okay. Yeah. So like when you think about it, he was going out to buy a used car is basically what he was doing. So he's <laughs> like, I need a car. <laughs> yeah. I need a horse. He's like, I need a horse. I'm going to bring my yeah. like $6,000 with me. We're going to find me a horse. Unfortunately, though, William Kirk never returned home. And his lifeless body was discovered four days later near a creek just beyond the city limits of Cincinnati. A rope was wound around his neck. His tongue jutted out in a manner that suggested strangulation. And marks of brutal blows to the upper part of his head were evident. Oh, poor guy. Now, the police suspected that the murder had taken place in a stable. Can we also say this, too? One of the things we saw in that building, both of you, Jen and Jill, were really drawn to it when we behind it was a parking extension and we kept seeing horses lined up as, as if it was a parking lot. Yes. Yeah. So I think that the fact that it was a horse stable, too, that they thought that maybe that's where it had occurred. Oh, wow. I forgot about that, Nicole. Mm. Wow. We need to bring her along more often. I know. <laughs> magic. So the police suspected that the murder had taken place in a stable. The investigation of Cincinnati stables quickly led to the identification of the victim as William Kirk. I just want to say the reason why they thought it was in a stable is some of the things that were found around the body. Like it was like, hey, and things like that. So it wasn't like this must have been a stable. It's like literally things around the body had suggested. Makes a lot more sense. I was going to say (laughs) down by the riverbed. But yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. The police discovered bloody stains and bloody clothing and other and stable, apparently stable stuff like hay and straw. Right. Mm -hmm. And there were two young men who worked for him and their names were William Burner and Joe Palmer. And they were arrested for robbing and murdering their employer. Mm-mm-mm. Now, William Burner and Joe Palmer, although they both worked for William Kirk, they came from different walks of life. Okay. Like, describe that to me. What does that mean? Do you want to talk about no, it? No, I want you to tell me um, okay. what what different walks of life they came from. Yeah, what does is, what is walks of life mean? Mm-hmm. One was rich and one was poor? Well, William Berner was the 18-year-old son of German immigrants, and his family was a family of means. So yes, it appears that his family was more connected and did have more wealth and more resources than the other young man. The other young man was Joe Palmer. He was 19 years old and of mixed African and European descent, but he was from a poor family who had fewer means. I just want to say that William Berner's family, I feel like I feel good about it only because they made their son work, even though they had money. So that's good on them. Mm-hmm. That's good parenting. Although he was a murderer. I don't know where they went wrong with the whole murder thing. Yeah. Other than that. <laughs> but yeah. What murder? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now, initially, they were questioned by police and both young men claimed their innocence. But police interrogated them separately. And when they did that, Palmer, again, the young man of more meager means, did not have a lawyer, and he was the first one to confess to his involvement in the whole affair. Mm. He revealed that Burner had enlisted his assistance for what he thought was a routine delivery. And unbeknownst to him, there was a lifeless body hidden within the rented wagon that was procured by Burner. And Palmer said he only discovered the body when Burner requested his help in unloading it. 
The circumstances surrounding William Kirk's demise remained a mystery to Palmer, according to him. Do we believe that? I was just going to ask you that. Psychically, what what are our thoughts? That's why I bolded it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't believe it. I, I think he knew that something was up. And I think he was probably promised money for this delivery. Maybe he didn't know the full thing about a murderer body. But I'm not... I don't believe at all that he just thought it was a routine delivery. That's what I'm mm-hmm. getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Me too. Jill, do you have anything to add? Um, I definitely knew he was into doing some kind of crime. I don't know if he was like signed up for murder, but definitely was on board with a crime. Like, hey, we just we have this special delivery to be made and I'm going to give you X, Y and Z. Help me with it type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see mm-hmm. that. I can totally see that. Okay. Now, when Berner was interrogated separately, he described the method and the motive of the murder. He said it was a robbery gone wrong, that the two of them together planned to attack Kirk and steal his cash. And Berner stated that it was Palmer, not he, who attacked William Kirk violently with a hammer and ultimately delivered the fatal blows. It was then that Berner procured the rented wagon, according to him, and accompanied Palmer for a portion of the journey. However, Berner said that he wasn't present when the body was discarded. When you got the feeling of strangulation and that it was like this sort of event, do you think either then or now as you're kind of tapping in either of you that he was hit over the head first or that the strangulation happened first? Because I think that's important when you're looking at he was found with his tongue out. When mm-hmm. I was feeling hanging, I feel like I was feeling the accused hanging. I mm. don't think I was feeling the murder, but I think that he was strangled. I think if he was hit over the head, it didn't like knock him out. Like he mm-hmm. just spit him in like, ow, and then strangled. Because mm-hmm. what I was getting is that I'm getting, he was approached from behind and there was something around his neck. Oh. And then they're trying to give us your money, whatever that is. And then when he still wasn't, because he's fighting for his life, then there were the violent blows that took him out, mm. is what I was getting. I don't know, Jen, if you are picking up anything else. The the thing that I'm picking up first and foremost is that Berner's lying. That's the first <laughs> yes. thing. As I read these words, this it doesn't make sense to me. I think that he mentioned the blows to the head because... Burner thought that they had killed him via the blows. He didn't realize that that, that wasn't the way he died. Mm-hmm. Does that yes, make sense? Yes. And mm-hmm. it was really the rope around his neck and the strangulation that ended up eventually killing him. But Burner didn't know that. So he's saying he I was wasn't the one that the struck police. first kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't kill him. Mm-hmm. Right. Got it. Intuitively, psychically, I definitely feel like Burner was the mastermind of this plan and it went wrong mm-hmm. for whatever reason. But I don't believe anything in his statement. Nothing of that. That seems true to me, but go on. Well, like I said, unlike Palmer, Berner did have an attorney and 500 potential jurors were summoned before Berner's lawyer accepted the, t- the final 12. So he had his pick mm-hmm. out of 500 to choose the 12 that he thought would be the best ones. And that's a lot of lawyer time. And you know how expensive lawyers are. <laughs> the trial of Berner began on March 3rd, 1884. And Palmer was to be tried separately at a later date. On March 26, 1884, after a lengthy trial, the jury delivered a relatively lenient verdict of manslaughter. Despite the testimony of several individuals who had heard Berner confess to planning and carrying out the murder... So he had planned it like way in advance too, not even like Dave. And do we think we know why? Is it because William was known to carry money a lot or that they just knew that he was going to buy a horse that day and that's why they got him at the stable? So it's funny you say that because in during the research, it was known that Kirk was kind of braggadocious. He was like, I got me Mm. some money. So he was like walking around with money a lot of the time. So I think both things are true. He may have been carrying more money that day because he was planning on buying the horse. And they probably knew that having worked for him. But yeah, he was kind of showy. That makes sense. Uh So with this lenient verdict of manslaughter, even the judge who imposed a 20-year sentence, described the verdict as a damn outrage. So even the judge was like, this is not right. Wow. 
And the following day, newspapers all over the city called for a public meeting to condemn the verdict. Hey, shit's getting real. On Friday, March 28, there was a significant gathering that took place at the Music Hall in Over the Rhine in response to the call by reputable citizens to take action on the Berner verdict. And several thousand showed up and attended a meeting to express their protest against this lenient sentence. I do want to say the people of Cincinnati are really taking this like seriously. This was the thing that like pushed them over the edge because they were so over the corruption and everything else. Exactly. Yeah. They organized. They're like, sign me up. I'm going to the music hall. This is just too much. So very Mm -hmm. impressive, Cincinnati, with your civic duties. Well, hold that thought. (laughs) (laughs) So at the music hall, Dr. A.C. Kemper delivered a speech discussing the prevalence of crime across the entire country, including Cincinnati, of course. And he emphasized the need for more certain and swift punishment of criminals. And his words ignited a sense of mob mentality. And after the meeting adjourned, the crowd moved as one to 12th Street, shouting, demands at the jail. Dr. Kemper was one hell of a speaker. (laughs) Apparently. So this mob made their way to the jail with the apparent intentions of taking matters into their own hands by targeting Burner for lynching. So the plan, this is the whole plan. And you know how a mob works. They don't really sit down and and talk about. (laughs) They're just they're 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 just emotionally triggered by the words. And they say, we're going to take action. So let's just go and get them. Exactly. They're going to go and they're going to break into the jail and they're going to get Burner and they're going to hang them for justice. So it just they feed off each other like Mm -hmm. like and it just you can just see it hyping up, hyping up, hyping up. Yeah. Okay. go on. So the mob got to the jail and made an assault on the front door. Mm -hmm. At 940, the riot alarm was sounded and that prompted the entire police force to rush to the jail. The whole five wagons. (laughs) So in the 1800s, what the hell is a riot alarm anyway? I like like is it no, it's a bell. Is it a bell or is it a telegram? Like what is a riot alarm look like in the 1800s? SOS. Yeah. It's it's the bat sign in the in the sky. Yeah. Anyway, well, I like, good for, I good, for great, good for them that they had a question. contingency plan for the five horse-drawn carriages or whatever. I know they make it seem like all the police like there are five police horses, there are five wagons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the entire police force rushed to the jail. The mob didn't know this, but Burner had been taken away after his sentencing that afternoon, and he was currently en route to Columbus. So he wasn't even there. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even home. They probably did that because they knew people were going to be pissed. The sheriff. I wonder. Mm-hmm. The sheriff was like, oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. So the police ordered the crowd to disperse. And despite this, the crowd refused to comply. And the police started firing their weapons. I mean, that's really reckless. You're in a crowd. You have five wagons. There's like 7,000 to 10,000 people. And you're just going to start firing your old ass gun. Like what? are They were firing shots in the air. No one was injured at this point. The police were firing their shots in the air. And it was rumored, actually, that the police also condemned the unjust verdict on Burner. Yeah, so they were probably like, oh, this is our job. Oh, shoot. Mm. (laughs) We've got to show up and we're going to fire it in the air in hopes that that's going to calm people down and not incite them further. And it didn't calm them down. Gunfire never really is never a calming effect. Like when someone's shooting guns, like I'm not feeling like, oh, I feel better. No, that's an escalation. 100%. Hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to unveil the first book in our series entitled Common Mystics Present Ghost on the Road, Volume 1, Murders and Mysterious Deaths. It's everything you love about Common Mystics and more. It's a retelling of 10 of our favorite stories from our pod with exciting extras. Extras like souvenirs, what we took away from the experience, and what to know if you go if you decide to travel in our footsteps. Pre-order the Kindle edition now. All other formats of the book will be available for purchase at Amazon.com on July 1st, 2023. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. So the crowd remained immovable. And as of 10 p.m. that night, they continued to work at the jail door, which I think is a great way to put it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Can't you just see him like working at the doors? Oh my god! And from what I understood, That's it was insane. iron. Uh, Iron doors. Mm -hmm, That makes sense. Yeah, that would make sense. Okay, so an hour later, it's 11 p.m. now, and the crowd were using tools. (laughs) Tools that were looted from the local blacksmith (laughs) shop. So now you're, you know, they're getting organized. I, I, love- I love Cincinnati so much because they're like, hey, you know what? There's a there's a <laughs> shop right there. What are we doing? We're just go get the tools from the blacksmith. This is an iron door. Nothing's going to stop us now. We think he's in there. We have no idea. He's on his way up to Columbus. Here you go. <laughs> so using the, these tools that they looted from the local blacksmith shop, they did manage to gain entry into the jail, but they hadn't reached the cell room where the prisoners were. So now they're inside, but they're not at the prisoners section yet. At this point, the sheriff sounded even more alarms. There's more alarms now. (laughs) More bells. The riot alarms didn't work. So now we're going to sound more alarms. Okay. But this action had the unhelpful effect of drawing even more people to the scene. Yeah, because sure. you're probably wondering what's going on. Like what's going so on in the jail? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. So the crowd is growing now. 11:30 p.m. The first militia regiment shows up at the jail, and they were led through the front entrance of the courthouse and through a tunnel to the jail, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, because we kept seeing tunnels as well. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. So while the militia are tunneling over to the jail, the mob continued their activities. Their mob activities. At midnight, around 30 musket shots were fired by the militia in an attempt to intimidate the unruly crowd. Again, de-escalation, people. Stop firing shots. Oh, Unfortunately, stray bullets hit four individuals, including police sergeant Mason and private cook. They who sustained the most severe injuries. Mm-mm. And although the volley of shots seemed to momentarily deter the mob, the crowd had yet to disperse from the jail. At 1.30 a.m., the militia fired on the mob and instantly killed a laborer. Also, do we know at this point if they realized he's still not in the building? No, I don't think so. They don't so know yet. They haven't even made their way up yet. No, they're not even at the the area where the, the prisoners are kept still. What's interesting is that once they figured out that he wasn't in the building, a mob was gathering in Columbus. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, after the main effort to access the prisoner had been abandoned, the mob still remained outside the jail and they started hurling stones and bricks at the building and at the windows. By that time, approximately 30 individuals from the mob had been arrested, but the mob was not about to give up. And at 1.45 in the morning, they broke into the armory of the veteran regiments and seized guns. Oh. In need of ammunition, they broke into the store of B. Kettridge and Company, the largest gun store in the city. Wow. Yeah, so now they're armed. They have absolutely no fucks. So at this point, we've had one we've had one casualty so far, despite all of this that we know of. One laborer from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Now, during the unrest, individuals involved in the rioting made an attempt to ignite the jail, to set the jail on fire using stolen kerosene. And it wasn't until the wee hours of Saturday morning that the situation was brought under temporary control. The evening's events resulted in the loss of five lives, including that of a police officer, and also left numerous others injured. That Saturday morning, as the sun rose on March 29th, civic leaders who initially supported this vigilante action grew increasingly concerned about it. I'm sure. In the aftermath of the tragic events from the previous night, many suspected that the socialists and anarchists, uh, the so-called dangerous classes, were, were leading the mob and orchestrating these activities. So they were saying, even though it was like Dr. Kempler and all these like prominent citizens who fired everyone up and got them all worked up and headed to the jail. Now they're like, it must be those criminals on the street taking over because that's not what we said. Words matter, people. Words matter. Uh huh. The governor of Ohio, George Hoadley, was urged to request reinforcements, but he did not respond quickly. And it wasn't until 5 p.m. that day that he finally ordered the deployment of additional militia units. And to make matters worse, some guards failed to fulfill their duty and even joined the rioters. 
So we call the militia and some of them are joining the opposite side. Well, it also has to be like, you're probably afraid, like afraid for your life. So mm-hmm. regardless of the which side of the fence you're on, you're probably also going to pick the what you perceive as that winning side if you're afraid too. Well, and I want to say like governor, a city was like writing. He should have been on the ball. He should have been on the like, ball. He should have been on mm-hmm. it, like dropped it. Totally shit his pants on that one. The additional militia reinforcements arrived too late to prevent any escalating violence and and didn't help the situation at all. And throughout the day on Saturday, the jail defenders quickly erected barriers in the nearby streets using vehicles and construction materials and grindstones and salt barrels, just barricading the streets. The militia left the armory behind and moved to the jail, bringing along all the weapons and the ammunition. And the jail soon became overcrowded and ill-equipped to support all of the occupants because you've got the police, you've got the militia Mm -hmm. inside the jail, along with the you know, the prisoners are obviously there too. Roughly two to 300 pre- policemen were present, but they chose not to actively engage in the conflict. That's kind of shitty. Like, honestly, like the police force are like, you know what? No, not today. Not feeling it. That's crazy. It's consistent with the day before when mm-hmm. they were doing their job, but not really. Mm-hmm. They're not really mm-hmm. trying to disperse the mob or, you know, Oof. make any real effort. And I find it interesting, too. So everything happened originally on Christmas Eve. And then so that was what? Friday? Well, this is March. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The murder happened mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve. And then Eve, this is March. The trial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then it's a Saturday. So right now there's like two days and it's the weekend is I guess what I'm getting mm-hmm. at. Because so, I kept seeing drinking and yes. partying. And so I feel that they were like, okay, now let's get a second wind and a second round in us. And yes. also they got paid on Saturdays from my research. So they were all just out there drinking because I kept seeing shots and just people like con- converging in these crowds. So I think that that was probably also fuel to the fire. Oh, for sure. And I, I feel like the rioters were also drinking in party. Like it must have mm-hmm. been. It must have been like New Year's Eve. You know what I mean? It must have been something. You get the sense that it's almost turning into a big party. Yeah, that's what I was get, kept getting when we were in the streets and the bricks and all of that. It was just some people were out there for the event to watch. And then other people may have been, well, obviously participating. Wow. So as night fell on Saturday, the mob once again converged outside the courthouse and the jail, and there was a fierce gunfight lasting for hours. Mm. The determined crowd succeeded in setting the courthouse on fire, thwarting the efforts of firefighters to extinguish the inferno. Ultimately, the courthouse was reduced to ruins. In addition, the rioters brazenly began looting nearby stores. I mean, oh, these people were looting night one. They did not Mm -hmm. care at all. They were just all in to destroy something. This is like massive. I want to say it probably puts it in the top 10 of the U.S.'s more deadliest riots. Mm -hmm. Now, eventually, additional troops began to arrive by train. A contingent of 300 militiamen from Dayton, Ohio, made their way to the crowd, situated three blocks away from the jail. However, they ultimately decided to return to the railway station. (laughs) No. They were like, F this. You don't pay us enough. We're out of here. (laughs) That's your train station. Yeah. (laughs) At approximately 11 o'clock p.m., a resolute force of 425 militiamen from Columbus arrived, equipped with a powerful Gatling gun. Now, what's a Gatling gun? Is that like a machine gun? It is. It's a machine gun on a wagon. And it looks like it looks like what do you call it? A cannon. It does. It looks like a cannon and it has faster fire. Oh, wow. Mm -mm. They were not messing around. The militiamen with the Gatling gun effectively cleared the streets surrounding the jail and the courthouse. Nonetheless, skirmishes persisted in other areas of the city until 3 a.m. So all day long on Saturday, the militia and the police were on duty. The courthouse and jail were surrounded by determined men who were tired but alert, and thousands of others were drawn to the area due to the excitement. No attacks were made during the day, but that night, rioters crowded the streets for several blocks above and below the jail and courthouse to the east and the west, and their numbers had greatly increased, and they attacked the jail again. 
This proved to be the most serious and disastrous attack of all. But why do they keep going after the jail? Sorry, real quick. I don't know. But why? They know he's not there. Is it just... Now they're just pissed. Yeah. Because <laughs> okay, I was like, they're just aiming for the jail yet again. I guess they figured they got the door off. So finally. Now it's the yeah. principle well, of the is thing. That, and I think, it's a, <laughs> I think it's a symbol. I think it's a symbol like fighting against like the government. I really do. And... They already put so much in to destroying that door <laughs> that, of course, it's like, you know what I mean? Double down on it. But I'm really impressed with the action that Cincinnati's taken. Like, they were, like, serious. They're, they're like, no more, which is impressive. I just wish they used their words more <laughs> and not. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were probably just so suppressed for so long. But yes. Good point. Well, here's another thing. They didn't just target the jail. They targeted the courthouse, too. And the building burnt entirely to the ground. All the valuable records accumulated over three quarters of a century were destroyed. And at this point, there is a bloody riot in the streets. Like a riot within the riot? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. So now they're just fighting in the streets. Captain John J. Desmond, leading an attack on the mob, was shot and killed inside the burning courthouse. And many important people got hit by stray bullets that were fired by the militia. Well, I mean, you use a machine gun. Yeah, that'll do it, right? Yeah, there was like a 13-year-old that was shot. There was just a a woman like just taking in the action with some popcorn that got shot. Like, (laughs) like, for real. On Sunday, March 30th, the riots started up again. Hence the drinking. Mm hmm. I keep seeing drinking. Mm hmm. By 925, news came in that the mob was trying to take over the music hall. Two companies of soldiers were sent and managed to drive the mob away without any violence. And they took control of the music hall back. Finally, at 10 p.m., Briggs Swift, a prominent citizen, was shot. Now, the Secretary of War, Robert Lincoln. Jill, would that be Abraham Lincoln's son? Don't make me Google no, seriously. that. <laughs> oh, you don't know? I thought you put <laughs> I that don't in there. Know. No, we're just we're just going to go with it. Okay. He's related to Lincoln and <laughs> he must we'll, be. He, yeah, he must be. But also, here's the thing. All this is happening in Cincinnati. Militia have been called in. They are running away again and again. They still can't control it. Right. And now all of a sudden it's escalated to the point where the United States Secretary of War is getting involved. Yes. And is calling out U.S. troops to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I believe I read, too, that the mayor said, all right. I'm going to close down all the bars. Uh-oh. Oh, really? Well, that's yeah, just going to piss them off more. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, at least they don't have access to stuff. That's but yes. True. To me, I feel like everything was done too late to defend the city. It just was. And that's true here, too, because the Secretary of War called out U.S. troops. But when they arrived, there wasn't anything for them to do, because by that time, the rioters were tired. They had gone back to work (laughs) because (laughs) they got to work on Monday. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? They're not idiots. The bars were closed. (laughs) They had to go back to work. The bars were closed. Things had settled down. The rioters went home. Um, But... But during the riots, a total of 56 people had lost their lives and over 300 were injured. I don't think that in my head I can even think about what a big deal this type of riot with these numbers were for the Mm -hmm. 1800s. Thousands of people, which I'm shocked that, I mean, anyone that loses their life or is injured is a tragedy. But the fact that only 56 and only 300 with a machine gun yeah. with all of this stuff with the amount of fire and looting and the fighting that was happening is just astounding to me. And the fact that they don't teach this in, in classes or anything, I, I have no idea how we didn't know about this. There was over 10,000 rioters at one point, just the rioters. 10,000 rioters? Yes. So think about being in those streets. Like these are old streets. Older American city streets mm-hmm. are narrow. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, just think of the the shit show. And there's like 10,000 people burning shit, trying <laughs> to get in to the jail, like looting. It's just such like, it's, I, I don't yeah. know. And I keep seeing it's almost a group of people rushing towards and then a group of people rushing away. So there was also probably at the point that we get to here, a lot of the the people that are still there or participating are only part of the riots. Everybody else probably hightailed it mm-hmm. over to Kentucky or Northern Ohio if you had the means to do it. They were gone. That's a really good point. 
So let's talk about what happened to our principal players, because you recall we had two individuals who were arrested for this crime. One was Burner, obviously. Yeah, all this happened because of Burner's trial. Right. right? And his sentencing, which was a lenient huh. sentence of manslaughter in 20 years, right? So what happened to his friend Joe Palmer? That's right. So Joe Palmer's trial began on June 10th, 1884, so months later. The trial was kind of underwhelming compared to the chaos surrounding Burner. Burner's verdict, the court had to deal with the challenge of selecting an impartial jury from a pool of 236 men. Most of them had already made up their minds against Palmer, of course, mm-hmm. and it took several days to find 12 who could be considered unbiased. But in the end, it was not surprising to anyone when Palmer was found guilty of first degree murder. Not even to him. Not even to him. Not even to Palmer himself, who had called the murder a mistake and famously said, and I quote, this is a hell of a murder and we ought to be lynched. See, he should have had a lawyer. A lawyer would have told him, you don't say that shit. (laughs) That's something you should never say. Oh, After an unsuccessful motion for a new trial, Palmer was sentenced to hang. The execution held on July 15th, 1885, was done privately in the jail yard, shielded from view by a stone wall and a big awning. Mm. Outside, a crowd still gathered on the nearby streets, eagerly waiting for news on Palmer's demise. So the fact that they couldn't see it didn't keep them away. And I have post-traumatic stress. When you said a crowd gathered, I immediately tightened up. Can you imagine? Like, here's the jail again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. At two minutes past 10 a.m., the trap was sprung, but Palmer's neck didn't break. It took another 26 minutes before he was officially declared dead. Oh, jeez. Do we also think that maybe he had a harsher sentence because of the riots, too? I mean, I know that Burner had more means, but was it also kind of an example at that point? I, I think know. that he was probably going to hang anyway, mm-hmm. to be completely honest. Forget yeah. it. No, I was just getting that they didn't feel like justice had happened with Burner and a right. person of means. Right. And they were just tired of the corruption and for however they felt, whatever that trigger was. And then now he has his trial. So he was never going to, quote unquote, win. And he's a murderer, too. So that's kind of a moot point. But anyway, I was just curious. Yeah. No, good question. Now, William Burner, you're probably wondering what happened to him since he took the train to to Columbus. Jesus. (laughs) On June 4th, 1895, after serving 11 years of his 20-year sentence, William Burner was granted parole for his exemplary conduct in prison. My God. And with his newfound freedom, he decided to start a new chapter in life by venturing into the neighboring state of Indiana and William's subsequent activities remain a mystery. So he just faded into history. Not happy about that at all. You're not happy about it No, just anyway, just (laughs) no. After all that, he just goes to Indiana and lives this life, but whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. So after the riots, the folks in Cincinnati finally got some stability in their government. But also this incident had larger implications on the national stage. Just tell us about George B. Cox. So George Cox stepped in and became the boss of one of the most powerful political machines in American history. He ran to be like a city commissioner before the riots, and he did not even have a showing, like no fouling. So now after post-riots, people were all on board with the Cox. He was more of a man of the people. And at the time, right after Mm. the riots, they still didn't have a lot of opposing people. And so this kind of got in because we always say it matters when you go and vote, when you show up, if you want change, don't riot in the streets, make it through your voting system. But it took some time. But it Mm -hmm. looks like the people were empowered enough to actually initiate change. That's right. There was finally stability after that. Cox had a big role in the Board of Public Affairs. He was a member of the Republican Party and a friend of William Howard Taft. And for a good portion of the 20th century, Boss Cox, really, Jill, Boss Cox, (laughs) Boss Cox and his crew had complete control over every aspect of city government. I did do it on purpose, too. I just wanted the audio of Jennifer saying Boss Cox. Um, For me, this chapter of American history really is as significant, if not more significant, than the Boston Tea Party, because this is an American city collectively getting together to shut down corruption and say we don't Mm -hmm. want a part of it and the effects that it had propelled 
William Taft to the national stage. I love this. A little unknown piece of history. Mm. It really did change American history. And it makes me mad that we don't know about it because this is a huge deal. I know. Now that I'm learning about it, I know. <laughs> and no one really knows about this no at one. all. It's not even wow. in the city of Cincinnati talked about as far as this big event. I mean, yes, you can hear about the riots, but not the intricacies of what started it really and what matters as a result of it in The Voiceless. Yeah. So let's talk about The Voiceless. Who Who is The Voiceless in this story? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What do you guys think? I went down such rabbit holes and like researching every 56 of these victims. So I'm too close to it. You guys, you guys take it. <laughs> well, you guys take I, it. from my perspective, William Kirk, for sure, because even with a lot of the mm. true crime conversations, podcasts, content that is out there, we focus on the killers. We focus on that aspect and not the victims. And here is someone we spent, what, a minute talking about him at the beginning and that he's just living his life trying to make a way and live the American dream and be this business person. And his life was abruptly taken from him. And really, it should have been, yes, people were ticked off. And this is what kind of the, that trigger that caused everything. But everything he stood for, again, that American dream and what actually caused it, I feel like there's a big piece of that. But every single person that stood for what he did that also had their lives taken or their livelihoods taken away from them. And that's what I think the the voiceless is. Jen? I agree with you, Nicole, 100%. Just the fact that his murder is overshadowed almost by the events after it and the riots and all of that craziness, we forget about William Kirk. And like you said, all of the other people who are victimized by murderers and by criminals with this corrupt environment of the city of Cincinnati. So I'm with you there. When I think of this story and I think of William Kirk, I just so identify with his wife. I really do. Think about like getting a kiss from your husband, not knowing where he is for days. And then this whole shit show comes out of it. It's like trauma on trauma on trauma. Do we even know what happened to her? No, there's nothing that we can find. Mm -mm. I didn't know her name. And a lot of the records were burned to the ground in this event. So that was really hard. Yeah. And just to think of all of the current living people and the future people who who have lost records, who have lost that information forever that was burned when the courthouse burned. It's sad. The courthouse is just doing what courthouses do. You know what I mean? It's it's there. Like, buildings have souls too, people. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it has all the information of the people in the city. So the courthouse is the house, the hub of the the faces, the the immigrants, the the working class in the city, and they get it got burned down. So many of the rich history of who the people were, the lifeblood of the city was lost that day. Now, I think that corruption is bad. Like, I'm not down with corruption. But guys, it was just a courthouse. It was just doing its courthouse thing. <laughs> and the fact that Cincinnati is literally, I would say, at least from what I pick up energetically of the people... And that that was such a symbolism of the courthouse. And again, not just the other people who were previously victimized other than William Kirk, but that history of America, it has such a huge, still does today, German influence, Italian influence from a lot of the immigrants that came through that couldn't necessarily settle in New York or some of these other bigger cities and states. And so that was just lost. So that was a, that is a, us giving a voice to those voiceless. True. What impresses me about Cincinnati, truly, is the fact that these people were trying to be heard and they were fighting a good fight for so long. And then it just got so cantankerous and so hard to do that it took something to like ignite their passions. But Cincinnati was really victimized as a city and kept going, mm -hmm. even though there was 10,000 people rioting and people dying and there was like legit carnage on the streets, like it sounds like a war zone. And yet there's still a Cincinnati today with a lot of those same old buildings mm -hmm. and you can feel the history on the streets. And I think that also takes up the pride. 
because that's another thing. When you drive around Cincinnati, even the neighborhoods, you can see people are like heartbroken when they see a building is coming down and they fight that good fight. And there may be some of that in their genes that they just don't know that that's wise Mm. because they stand for that history, for that Americana, but also the cultures that that embodies as well as a result. So William Kirk, definitely the Cincinnatians. Then and now, Mm -hmm. and I would say for sure, those are are voiceless. So looking back at our hits, obviously the whole crime and corruption vibes, as well as that feeling of the late 1800s, all makes complete sense. Yes. And I I love watching you work, Nicole. You are really amazing. And like I said, you (laughs) fit right in. Let's go over your hits. Okay. So the old-fashioned horse-drawn fire truck, which also, fun fact, Cincinnati was one of the first cities to have fire department and fire trucks. So I think that that was an implication on two ways, both through the fire and the spreading of it. And I think we all got the fact that it was central. I don't even know if that courthouse wasn't over the Rhine. It must have been really darn close. But the fact that a whole lot of that activity happened there that we felt like, you know, even after we said the intention, do we need to go somewhere else? And we said, nope, we're going to stay right here in OTR. So there was that. Mm -hmm. The throwing things from windows to the streets. I think those were the people that were passively involved, probably like eating their popcorn and throwing stuff. They wanted to be involved. (laughs) But Nicole, the militiamen, when they were held up and everyone was packed in the jail, they were throwing things from the windows down at the crowd to get them away Mm -hmm. from the building. Yeah, because I kept seeing all these people throwing stuff out. So there was that, of course, the Mm -hmm. fire spreading. And then I again, I know you felt the train, Jill, but I was feeling the banks of the water. And if you think about you want to get the hell out of Dodge, then where are you going to go? You're going to go somewhere where there's something that divides the city. And I think even though we didn't talk about it and maybe there's not that history there because it got burned down, I think people probably went that way versus all the way up to Columbus just to get out. And William Kirk's body was found at the banks of the river. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Yes. And what's really interesting now that knowing that, and we always figure this stuff out in hindsight, but you kept going, trying to get down to the river. Yeah. It's almost like you were looking for a body. Yeah, you're right. It was a sense of urgency. I got to get to the river, the banks. Mm -hmm. And then the horses. I mean, I know we all got that too, but I just could not get horses out of my mind. And I didn't understand. I thought it was honestly because it was in the 1800s. So there's horses, you know, but there's a significant piece that he wasn't killed in the stable. He was going to buy a horse, all of that. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the soldiers armed and lined up in a row? Or do you want to talk about that now or no? I saw on a school building that we were at soldiers at the top, they were lined up. And I was getting more like civil war, but in, but then I got another hit and I saw people in uniform. So I think that was probably the police or the militia when they were moving forward. Cause I kept getting lines like, here's a line. Now somebody else goes in line and then another line, almost like wartime. Got and it. I wasn't understanding cause Cincinnati mm-hmm. didn't have any actual civil war activity. It's one of the only cities in the United States for a variety of reasons that didn't. So it wasn't making sense, but I think it was because of the riot. Okay. So this is a hit that's going to keep on giving because we'll we'll talk about it again in a couple of weeks. Jill, you you've got some really amazing hits as well. Barricading doorways, like I can only imagine those poor people inside the courthouse or the jail, or like, your own yeah. home, or your yeah, own home. My God, or the shopkeepers trying mm-hmm. to keep their merchandise from the looters, hanging their liquor. <laughs> I know. That would totally be me. Like I would not like I would be so focused on like looting the bars or just like in the chaos. I would be so opportunistic. But um the hanging, I really do think it, it was a Palmer hanging. I don't I didn't think it was associated with the original murder of William Kirk. Being drawn to the music hall, like I said, that that building jumped out at me like visually 3D impacted my line of sight when I was driving. That's where the mob started. And the train station. So the train station, they put Burner on that train. They were like, Mm. get him out of here. And the militia was coming to and Mm. from. I personally love the story that the militia gets there. And they're like, oh, hell no. And they turn around (laughs) and go back. They're like, no, I'm not staying here. (laughs) I didn't know it was this bad. I just keep thinking about the streets Mm. that we were on. That's where this was happening. Like Vine Street. Like this was happening on that street. Like there were crowds of people 
rioting and drinking and like fueled on anger and alcohol. Yes. Just is insane. Well, this was so much fun. It was amazing to be out on the street with you, Nicole, doing what we do with you. It was just amazing and fun. And I am really looking forward to doing another story with you because we have some more hits to, to explore, don't we? Yes, we have. I'm super excited to do the research because we found a creepy situation in Northern Kentucky. Yeah, that one was the one that had my jaw on the floor. <laughs> I love you. Thank you so much. Yes. I cannot tell you how much we love you and we're adopting you. Oh, thank you. Yes, please do. Please do. And vice versa. You're ours now. Yes. Well, we'll have a lot more to share, a lot more fun. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Do you want to plug yourself at all before oh, we tell people where they can Sure. Find us? Yeah. So obviously, Nicole Bigley of A Psychic Story. You can find me on apsychicstory.com and all the social medias of at A Psychic Story. So thanks for, again, for letting me be on. And she's an author. Oh, Her book's coming yeah, out. I almost forgot. Oh, my goodness. How could I forget my book? Looking for <laughs> Angels. That will be out. I don't think we've announced it yet. 11-11. Yay. Perfect. I love that. Mm -hmm. Very serendipitous. Mm -hmm. And you can check us out at commonmystics.net. Find us on our socials at Common Mystics Podcast. Please remember to download, like, and share with your friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye.